Jeremy, I'm going to try to take over it if I can get to it. I got to find it. It's not working. Can I just point to you for the slides? Okay. I tried to make it work and it's not. Um, Well, I'm thankful to be able to preach again today for us. Uh, We're in Romans chapter 8, which is for a lot of believers. I know a very special chapter in the Bible. And for many different reasons, there's uh, Romans in itself is jam-packed, but chapter 8 is even more so for those who are um, longing for the day when Christ will return. And so as we uh, come to this time today on December 17th, the third Sunday of Advent, uh, I, I've not gone through every part of the nativity with our kids, but as we came to the, the animals in the nativity, we, we kind of talked about creation uh, rejoicing in the birth of Christ. And the animals there kind of help point us to, to think about how creation even longs for Christ's return. And the, uh, I don't believe that the animals that were there were thinking, oh, yay, the Savior's been born. But the Bible tells us, and thinking of the animals in the nativity, make me think about this passage from Romans chapter 8. As it says that, uh, creation groans and yearns for this, the Savior to come and for the revealing of the sons of God because they too, creation as a whole, has been subjected to futility. And so the, uh, the animals there help us to think about the fact that we are, we are yearning and longing not for just the first advent because that's come and gone, but we are yearning for a day when He will come again so that all of creation will be restored. All of creation will be remade. It will be no longer under the curse of sin. And last time I preached, I was able to preach about the joy of Christ coming to the earth, not only for the, the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. In the, the, the wise men coming who were not Jewish people, they were coming to worship the King. And so that time when I preached, it was kind of more of a celebratory uh, thought. Today... We're not quite in that that mode because it is uh, true that as we celebrate Christmas, that not everyone is bounding with excitement at Christmas time. There is much that causes us pain, causes us grief and suffering. You don't have to look far and wide. You don't have to um, talk to very many people before you find out that people are hurting, that people are, are not necessarily just joyful all the time. And when we come to Christmas time, a lot of times people put on happy faces and they put on the festive clothing and we're excited, but deep down inside we might not be. And that, I do believe, is because we are yearning for something better. And so I've thought that maybe, maybe it's just because I'm growing older and I'm seeing more people suffer as I get older. I pay attention more to that than I did when I was a kid. That may be true. I've thought maybe it's because I'm... I counsel people and I've counseled hurting families at the ranch for close to nine years now. And maybe that's why I just see it more. And then I've come to the conclusion that I just think that 
people are hurting. And more and more people are hurting because that is a fulfillment of Scripture. That the Bible says that people will go on from bad to worse. Therefore, our suffering will grow. And so as, as sin affects this world, we are affected as believers because we live here in this world. We're affected because we too are still sinners. And we're affected by how that sin uh, ruminates and, and um, impacts one another in relationships in the world as a whole. And so you don't have to look very far to, to be seeing somebody who might be suffering if you're not suffering yourself. And so as we, as we come to even this Christmas time and we're just one week away from, from Christmas, we must remember that Scripture does give us a solid theology of suffering. And even though it is the season of joy, it's, it's not joyful simply because we feel joyful, but it is joyful because Christ has come to the earth and the Savior's coming excels or grows our hope in the second return of Christ. And so we can, we can yearn for that here today as the people in the Old Testament yearned for His first coming. We yearn for Him to come back. Not to come as a baby in a manger, but to come as the all-powerful King and ruler of the world and the ultimate Creator who will remake everything. So let us read just one verse out of this passage. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 8. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul tells us that we have to examine our focus. That we're, we're all dealing with different things and those things can cloud our judgment, they can cloud our vision. And Paul wants us to look past the temporal to the eternal. He wants us to move past the here and now and see what's coming. And Jeremy, if you'll go to the first slide... John Bunyan in his classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, um, I can't remember who says it, but they're saying it to Christian's wife who is on her journey. And they say, The bitter must come before the sweet, and that also will make the sweet the sweeter. And we hear that, and we reject that. (laughs) But I don't want the bitter. I just want the sweet. And I think in, in... John Bunyan's uh, allegory, he is, he's painting a very biblical picture for us. That as, as we go through this life, it makes heaven all the more glorious. It makes seeing Christ all the more glorious as we go through suffering here. This Christmas, you may not feel like you are in a celebration mood due to the suffering you might be experiencing. But Paul points us to see three types of groanings here in this passage. The groaning of creation is an example for us. The groaning of the redeemed is our groaning. And the groaning of the Spirit of God is a help to us. And and He wants us to see that our suffering in this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you'll go to the the next slide. Um, Let me read uh, verses 19-22. through For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And so we see the first groaning as we're groaning for glory. Creation groans for restoration. And he is using creation as an illustration for verse 18. He tells us that we need to be longing for something future. And he says, look at how creation groans. It is... It says that it is waiting with eager expectation. It is longing as if it's standing erect, looking out to see that coming. It is waiting. It is patiently waiting. And now, it, it doesn't mean that all of creation is, is yearning like this. Like, unbelievers are not yearning for this. They're not longing for Christ to come back. It's not talking about us because he mentions us in the next passage. He's talking about the creation that we know, that, that we experience and we're going to read in just a second where this, uh, uh, this was told to us. He's talking about the, uh, the creation that we experience around us. It's not talking about angels, for they cannot be redeemed. It's not talking about us or, or, the, uh, or unbelievers. But he is talking about the cre- creation as we know it. The earth, the, the land, the sea, the uh, animals, the things around us. And look at this. Uh, if you go to the next slide for me, or I think we're there. The cursing of the ground. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that creation is subjected to futility. And this is by God for the sin of man. Look at Genesis 3 for me. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now if any of you have been out here, out to my house at the ranch, I have a garden in the back of my house. And it's a quite large garden, much bigger than I should have ever made it. And every year about mid-July, this passage of Scripture rings very true. And it makes me very frustrated because of the grass and the weeds. And there's these little plants that grow in my garden that you, re- you reach down and grab. And you don't see them until you grab them. And then the thorns go deep into your skin. And so I am, I am frustrated all the time every year and reminded of this passage that because of sin, this ground is hard. Because of sin, these thorns and thistles grow up in all the places that I don't want them to. But it is very interesting that here in Romans chapter 8, we see that Paul is painting this picture that creation is even burdened by this. That even creation knows that it is not reaching its full potential. It is stuck in futility. And so through this passage, we see that the cursing of the ground was not because of sin, or because of the sin of creation, but because of the sin of man. And God plunged it, plunged that creation into futility. As if it was another effect for us to remind us yet again that what we did was, an, was outside of God's good plan. And so all of creation as we know it is now outside of God's good plan. The best plan that it could have been. All of creation was affected if you'll go to the next one for me, that not only is it, is it cursed, but it's cursed in it, it is subjected to vanity or futility. Now that word is a word that basically means emptiness. 
uselessness. It's not, it's not rising to its full potential. Now, I, I'm, I'm a painter recently, not very long, and I'm not very good at it, but I like to look at these great pictures and try to replicate the beauty of creation. And I see that picture, and I'm like, man, what God created is glorious. And yet, that's still not reaching the full potential of creation. What a thought. And I'm reminded as I look out my back door when that grass grows up in the garden and I don't want to do anything to take it out. If I don't, it'll overpower all the things that I want in there. Creation is subjected to this emptiness, this uselessness. But there's even a a more interesting thought here. That creation is subjected to false gods. Now that's that's an interesting thought to think about, but we all know this passage The creatures made by God for His glory would then be fashioned and molded into images of created things for man to worship as false gods. And we see the the word futile and this creation also being used at the same time in Romans chapter 1. If you'll go to that next slide for me. Romans 1, 18-23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, But they became futile, that's our word, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. One of the ways that creation has been subjected to futility is it's been fashioned as a God for man to worship. They have replaced the one true God for things that God made. <clears throat> Another way that it is subjected to futility is it is subjected to destruction. Death, destruction, sickness, earthquakes, floods, pain, they all enter into the degrading creation. And because of these things, we see that Romans 8, that creation is groaning Think of all the the subjection to futility that has been experienced since the beginning of time through the sinful warring, like fighting, of mankind. From Cain slaying his brother and shedding his blood through all the wars over history. I think of uh, a place in Pennsylvania, Gettysburg, that they said there was so much bloodshed that the rivers and the ponds ran with blood. They were red with blood. Think of all of the empires that conquered nations and destroyed whole people groups. And if creation could testify against man of man's sin, it would be enormous. The way that creation has been subjected to man's warring and bloodshed and and killing of, of life. Even the song that we sang tonight, I don't know if... Elijah knew this, but it was written during the time of the Civil War. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And that, that hymn is, is talking about, all I see is this, this futility, this hatred, this 
warring of mankind. And so even in that hymn, we, we were seeing that, that tension today. But then there's this other idea. It is groaning, and we're, we're used to groaning. Like I, I get up on Monday morning, and I'm like, i got to go to work. I don't want to go to work. And I, I know all the things that are going to await for me on Monday morning because I haven't been in the office for two days. And so now there's this list of things that people have piled up ready for me to come in. And so I groan and I'm complaining about the negative thing that I'm coming to see. But here we see that this groaning is in the pains of childbirth. And that, that, that thought connects us back to Genesis 3 where we were a few minutes ago. Where God tells Eve that he will multiply her pain in, in childbirth. And we, we think of groaning, we, we aren't thinking of that positive expectation. I'm thinking of a negative thing. What awaits me is a negative, bad thing. I don't want it. Death is coming. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that. I'm, I'm longing for that not to be so. But here, it says that creation groans in the pains of childbirth, not death. There's hope here. Hope of a life to come. In verse 20, Paul states that God subjected the creation to futility in hope. Hope of a restoration when the sons of God are finally restored. So so think about that. Think about that idea of childbirth. I obviously have never had a baby. So I can only talk to my wife and ask her what that was like. I have had kidney stones and that hurts a lot, but she thinks that that doesn't equate. Um... However, I asked her, I said, does, does holding a newborn baby equate with the pain that you went through to have that baby? And she said, oh, that quickly dissipates when you're sitting there holding that, that newborn baby. And I think that that's why Paul is giving us creation, yearning, groaning in the, the pains of childbirth as an illustration for us. That yes, it hurts. It is painful. There's a lot of suffering There's a lot of yearning for it to be over. But what happens on the other side is so great and so glorious that the bitter must come before the sweet and it surely makes the sweet all the more sweeter. And he reminds us in verse 18 that we've already read, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Creation groans, but it groans in hope. For that which is coming. We see in Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, at the end of our service today, we're going to sing a song that I absolutely love. And it was not actually written as a Christmas carol, but I fully accept it as a Christmas carol. So don't think I'm kicking it out. But Isaac Watts wrote a hymn in 1719 that was actually based on Psalm 98. And it's become a staple for congregations and churches and even it's on the radio all the time during Christmas. And if you'll go to the next slide, there it is. In this third stanza, it says, Far as the curse is found. And this line alone caused it to actually be removed from quite a few hymnals for about... 50 years. And if you look at the, the there's, there's a site that I go to to look at hymnal, hymns and things like that. And when it first came out, it was in 100% of the hymnals that they had recorded. And then within a few years, it dropped off the charts. Like only five of them had it. 
And then all of a sudden, within you know, 50 years, 60 years, it started to come back again. But it's because of this line, people said, this doesn't, doesn't fit with Psalm 98. It has nothing. It does not talk about the curse. But Isaac Watts, as you hopefully know, the hymns that he wrote, he wrote them from a New Testament point of view. So he took the Psalms and he wrote a Psalter that was through the lens of the New Testament. And so in that way, this verse fits. And it says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And Watts, when he writes his, his hymn, he's interpreting Psalm 98 through the lens of Christ in the New Testament. And this actually connects both Genesis 3 and Psalm 98 to here in Revelation, or, uh, Romans 8, all the way to Revelation 21 and everything in between. Because he, he says, far as the curse is found, Christ coming in His first advent, and this is why we should sing Joy to the World every Christmas, because His first coming gave rise to an even greater hope that He would come again. That He would come then to make all things new, far as the curse is found. Paul states that creation longs to be set free from its bondage to corruption, which came because man sinned and God subjected it to futility. And Christ's first advent and subsequent death and resurrection are what we rejoice in. It means that mankind can be redeemed from the curse, which is we enter into this next type of groaning. Those who trust in Christ as Savior and Lord can receive this hope. So look at verses 23 and 25. The redeemed groan for final adoption. 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The, the redeemed also are groaning with this expectant longing. And it should not be hard for us to understand this groaning. As I said earlier, it's not, you don't look very far to find suffering in most everybody's lives. And I think the reason that we can see that so well is because we have what Paul says is the first fruits of the Spirit. He has opened our eyes that this is not all that there is. We don't have to be people that are bound to circumstance. We are bound to sovereignty. We trust in what God has, has set for all of time. We trust that He is working through all things and He's going to bring them to pass. And one day, that which He has promised is going to be coming fulfilled. And so because of the first fruits of the Spirit, we see just how awful this suffering is because we know there's something better coming. And it's like, uh, I think it was uh, Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, he talked about how as you start to pursue holiness, the Holy Spirit shines a light in your heart. And you actually have what feels like a reverse effect. You, you get this idea that, oh, how unholy I am. Because all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit's pointing this light in all the cavities of your heart, revealing all the things that you had kept hidden or that you were blind to. So you feel worse. But that's actually a work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying you and growing you. 
In the same way, when we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we see just how awful this place is. This isn't our best life. This isn't the best thing that we can yearn for. We have something greater coming, which actually makes it feel like this weight is even greater. So when we groan, we are groaning for the greater that is coming. Passages like 1 John 3, 2 say, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Or 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And we groan because we long for that day, capital D, the day of the Lord to come. We groan for the fullness of what we have partially now. We see in a mirror dimly now, but then we will see face to face. Now it is in part, then it will be in full. We have the Spirit now, but in bodies that are still affected by sin and need redemption, full redemption. We are redeemed in position, but we are still in the process of sanctification. What we are now is not what we will be. And so we as the redeemed, we long for that adoption to become complete. And Paul tells us to wait for it with patience. Because we do not see it now, we hope for it. For no one hopes for what he already sees. And Paul tells us, he says, hope patiently. And I'm reminded of a, a sermon that I preached from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, that is also a passage on suffering. And it, it, it is also crying out for us to look to the eternal over the temporal. And in verse 15, he says, those who, uh, Peter says, those who suffer should not suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. And when I think of these two passages together, I see the temptation that arises in us, and, and me especially, that when I'm suffering and longing for the day that it would be better, I'm tempted to try to handle it in my own power. Not, not walking according to the Spirit, but walking according to the flesh. And when I walk according to the flesh, I respond in the flesh. Murdering or hating, stealing or, or taking that which, which is not mine. Evil doing, envy, revenge, or meddling. But when we suffer in the Spirit, we patiently hope. Those who suffer in the Spirit have learned what both Romans 8.18, and I've read it twice now, and I'll read it again in a second. Both 8.18 and 1 Peter 4.19 mean. Let's read it again. Maybe we'll have it memorized by the time we leave. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And 1 Peter 4 says, Therefore, let those who suffer... According to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So, none of us is good at this. None of us is good at suffering well. Like, we all struggle with it. Every one of us. And those that are doing better at it than we are now, it's just because they've gone through more of it and they're learning. They're further along the road than we are. But all of us struggle with this. And that is why so much of the Bible is trying to teach us a, a longing for the eternal over what happens now. 
Calvin said, Patience is an inseparable companion of faith. And the reason of this is evident. For when we console ourselves with the hope of a better condition, the feelings of our miseries is softened and mitigated so that they are born with less difficulty. So as you, as you pray in your suffering to be hopeful in patience, cry out that the Lord will help you bear this suffering with less difficulty as you look with eager expectation to the day when your salvation is complete in glory. But no, and this is why Paul continues on, we are not alone in this. You do not have to do it on your own. For now we have the third type of groaning, the groaning that is our help. And it's done by the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows, that, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so finally, in the, the, the third type of groaning is the Holy Spirit groaning with words too deep for or with, with prayers too deep for words, in our weakness. Suffering and sin produce weakness in us. And the Bible says that we do not know how to pray aright. So the Spirit then comes in, and He intercedes, and He prays for us that which is the will of God. And we may want the right things at times, but not always. And though we may pray for the right things at times, there are also times when when we are praying for the selfish things. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, praying that the will of God would be done in our life, not just the relieving of suffering. The Spirit intercedes. The tendency is to pray for a change in our circumstances or a swift and accurate work of God that will end our suffering. God just, you know, uh, I can't think of the word, what it's called. Just get them, God. Take care of my enemy. Take them out. Just let it be over. However, the Holy Spirit comes in and He prays that our suffering would bring about the change in our heart that God is seeking. He's praying that the sanctification of our life would occur, not just our removing from the, the, the circumstance of suffering. The Spirit prays that what is best because He knows the will of God in our lives. And when we struggle to pray aright, He intercedes with prayers for the will of God on our behalf. This doesn't mean that we should stop praying. It doesn't mean that we should just be quiet and just say, okay, I'll just let the Holy Spirit do that for me. No, but you should trust that as you are praying and yearning for God to interact uh, in your situation, that you can trust that the Holy Spirit is pleading on your behalf with groaning that's too great for words. He is praying for you, but not necessarily that you would be free from your suffering. He is praying for you, but not that your circumstance would change too quickly. He is praying for you according to the will of God. And He prays that your suffering would produce endurance, and endurance would produce character, and your character would produce hope, 
And that hope being in Christ through the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. And he prays that you would learn to put off your sinful ways of the flesh and put on the sanctified ways of the Spirit. He prays that you would suffer as Christ suffered and not as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. He prays that you would rejoice in your suffering because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And he prays that you would entrust your soul to a faithful Creator while doing good. And the only reason that I would know that, or that we would know that, is because those are the words of Scripture. Those are are passages of Scripture that are always connected to suffering or persecution. And so we know that the Spirit of God is praying the Word of God. He is praying that which is the will of God in our lives. And so in your suffering, keep an eye on the eternal. Look to the future. Look further than the temporal situation that is here and now. In your suffering, remember that this current condition is not to be compared with the glory that awaits. And thirdly, remember that your suffering, in your suffering, that God uses all things for your good and His glory. I tell guys all the time at the ranch that God wastes nothing. There's so much in, in suffering that seems pointless. There's so much in, in pain that feels worthless. But everything has a purpose. And God uses it all. And it says it here. That, that's how I know this. It says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. For those who are called according to His purpose. That means all of those pains, all of those grieves, all of those sufferings are being used for His purpose in your life. And it's not wasted. Pain and suffering always feels like a waste. I've lost this many years of my life suffering through this. I've lost this much of my relationships going through this trial. I feel like I've lost all my joy and all of my life. But God does not waste anything. That means that we who love God must remember that nothing's wasted. Nothing's on accident. But He's working all things for, his, for our good and His glory. That means the grief you experience right now is being used for your good and His glory. That means the broken relationships you are fighting to have reconciled are for your good and His glory. That means the sickness and the pain you daily bear is forming in you Christ-likeness as you rest upon Him and wait for the redemption of your body. That means that you can suffer with Christ here and now because you know that glory awaits. That there will come a day when all these things will no longer exist. And all these things have a purpose to bring us unto the Lord. Finally, and I will not do justice to these last few verses, because you could preach on probably every other word a whole sermon on on these these last few verses. But the triune God is working to bring salvation to completion. The Trinity is working in every aspect. The Father, it says, foreknew and predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that is through suffering. The Son suffered on our behalf and was without sin, therefore able to be our Savior and call us unto Himself and into His family. And through the Spirit, we are brought through sanctification and sealed for the day of glory. The Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing full inheritance in glory. 
And so you see this, this progression in these last few verses. Really, the verse 30. We are predestined, and those that are predestined are called, and those that are called are justified, and those that are justified will be glorified. So yes, you stand in position justified today. But through suffering, God is working in you and making you prepared and making you more like Christ for the day that you will see Him face to face. So, in that list, if you are a believer today, three of those things are are true right now. And one of those is still yet to be. And that's what we long for. And this process involves suffering. Even at Christmas. We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's not wasted. It's not useless. It's not for nothing. He is working in you to bring salvation to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as, as we talked about the animals in the nativity set, I asked the kids, like, what, what do you long for in their young life? What do you long for for Christ to change one day? And we, we, we said words like sickness. We say words like pain or the meanness of our sibling. We said things like uh, trials. They didn't use the word trials, but like bad days. As an adult, I think about things we suffer through as a church. Sickness and pain. Even church discipline matters. Hatred. Disaster. Bitterness. At the ranch, I think about abuse, neglect. And then thinking about my father coming into our home and the wasting away of our bodies unto death. And my kids may be young, but they have seen some of that. And I am thankful that they have because I I think that that helps them to see Christ in a different way. I yearn and I groan with hope at the day when death will be done, when the wasting away of our bodies will be over, when the pain of sin against one another is over, when the day we will see Him face to face, when the day that my sin in my own heart will be finally put away with, we groan though with hope, awaiting the glory to be revealed. The first advent made a way for us to be right with God through the Son's life, death and resurrection. But the second advent of Christ will bring the full restoration of all things and redemption in full. Uh, One commentator said this, and we're almost done. He said, Those who have trusted in Christ have already received adoption. And as led by the Spirit, they are sons of God. But when their mortal bodies have been quickened, and the corruptible has put on incorruption, they possess all that sonship involves. For this they wait and sigh, and the inextinguishable hope born of the Spirit dwelling in them guarantees its own fulfillment. 
So as you look at this passage, look at creation being an example for us. That it was subjected to futility because of man's sin, but in hope that one day it would be recreated and it would be in its full capacity. That as we look at us, we groan and we yearn for that day when glorification will be complete. But until then, we, we look at the Spirit's groaning who is helping us in our weakness. That as we suffer, He is praying on our behalf with words that are too deep for, or with groanings that are too deep for words. So as Revelation 22, the very last words of the Bible say, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Let us stand to sing.